Okay. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He, when he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And said unto him, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. When he went his way, therefore he washed and came seeing. And the neighbors, therefore, and they which were beforehand seen him that was blind, said, Is this not he that sat and begged? Some said, This is he, and others said, He is like him, but he said, uh, He is like he, him, but he said, I am he. Therefore said they unto him, How were thine eyes opened? And he answered and said, A man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed, and I received my sight. And they said unto him, Where is he? And he said, I know not. They brought him to the Pharisees that aforetime was blind, him that aforetime was blind. And it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then again the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight, and he said unto them, He put clay upon mine eyes, and I was washed, and do see. And therefore said some of the Pharisees, This man is not of God, because he keepeth not the Sabbath. Others said, How can a man that is a sinner do, so, do such miracles? And there was division among them. And they said unto the blind man again, What sayest thou of him? That he opened thine eyes, he said, he is a prophet. And they said unto the blind man again, whatever thou, uh, what sayest thou of him, excuse me, he's a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind, receiving his sight, until they called his parents that had received his, of him that had received his sight. And they asked him, saying, is this your son? Whom ye say was born blind, how doth he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, that he was born blind. But by what means he now seeth, we know not. Or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age, ask him, he shall speak for himself. These words spake his parents because they feared the Jews. And the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was the Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, the parents said, he is of age, ask him. Then again called they the man that was born blind and said unto him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that I was blind, and now I see. Then said they unto him, What did he to thee? How opened he thine eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and ye did not hear. Wherefore do ye hear it again? Will ye also be his disciples? And they reviled him and said, Thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses, as, as for this fellow we know not from whence he is. And the man answered and said unto them, Why, herein is a marvelous thing that ye know not from whence he is, and yet he hath opened mine eyes." Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, he heareth him. Since the world began, was it not heard, it was not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind. If this man was not of God, he could do nothing. They answered and said unto him, Thou wast altogether born in sin, and dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when, they, when he had found him, he said unto him, 
Do thou believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into the world, that they which see not might see, and they which see might be made blind. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? Jesus said unto them, If you were blind, ye should have no sin. But now ye say, We see, therefore your sin remains. Now this is a big chunk of a chapter, amen? There's a whole lot in here, and that's why I said you need to get ready to write some things down. You need to be ready to mark some verses. You need to be getting your notepads out and ready to go. Mike's ready to go. Kyle's halfway ready to go. <laughs> oh, man, now you're going to have to get Mike to send you pictures of his notes now. That's it. So I wanted to start with a few things of understanding. Here we have come to the healing of the man that was born blind. And the revelation that light has come into the world. And that this revelation of this light that come into the world came to give sight to those who cannot see. And to cause those who think they see to be made blind. The, those who are willing to accept and confess Christ are those who truly see. And those who reject him yet say that they see are truly blind and are still living in their sins. Acceptance of Christ, confession of Christ reveals the regenerating work of God in the hearts of men. Those whom the Father draws, those whom truly hear the voice of the Good Shepherd, prove to be his disciples, prove to be his sheep indeed. We see clearly both of these people in this chapter. We see both of these sides of this coin in this chapter. And I pray that it would cause us afresh and anew to ask this same question of our own selves, do you believe in the Son of God? Amen? So as we begin this, we understand the ramifications. The whole chapter is summed up in the last three verses, okay? This whole chapter, the man being born blind, yes, Christ healed the man. But the man being healed was for a testimony of God that light had come into the world. Amen. And what this purpose of this light was to do was to cause those who could not see to see. And those who say they see to be made blind. This is a very big discussion because many times we... we we remember Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save the lost. Amen. Can somebody say, I remember that verse. Hold your hand up if you remember that verse. You want to hear another verse that Jesus said? I've come not to bring peace, but the sword. I've come to set father against son and mother against daughter. Why? Because the gospel divides on the dividing line of faith. And not your family genealogy. The gospel is such that you believe and you believe. That doesn't necessarily mean your kids will believe. And they must believe. The reality is there's no, the, the only dividing line between heaven and hell is Christ Jesus. You either believe or you don't. You're either born again or you're not. You either can hear or you can't hear. That's what we see all throughout Scripture. We also have another I am statement in the midst of this chapter. You know, we've had uh, uh, other I am statements from Jesus. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. Come on, somebody. Amen. 
This, this, in this chapter, we have another I am statement. I am the light of the world. This statement is emphatically the whole point of this chapter. And it's summed up in the last three, four verses where he tells you what the light came to do. He emphatically says, this is what the light came to do. I want to read this again, okay? Just for uh, refreshing on this, because there's a lot of reading that we went through. Verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world, that they which see not might see, and they which see might be made blind. See, the purpose of the Son of God was to come down here and to seek and to save the lost. But that the other side of that coin is that there are those who will not be saved. There are those who will not believe. There are those, even though they claim to see and they claim to walk in some religious understanding, the fact of the matter is, is that they are blind and destitute and lonely and naked, just like that church in the book of Revelation. He said, I counsel you to buy eye salve for your eyes and buy, buy bread from me. He said, because you don't see that you're lonely and destitute and naked and in the dark. You see, this light divides those who stand in the light and those who run from the light. John 3, 18 and 19. This is the judgment that light has come into the world. But men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Those who believe are not condemned. But those who don't believe are condemned already. Because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is exactly the offer that Jesus makes to the blind man. He said, do you believe in the Son of God? And he said, tell me who he is that I might believe in him. He said, you've seen him and heard him. And it's he that's speaking to you right now. Jesus goes back and finds this man that was healed and then offers him the gospel. He believes and the religious people of his day reject him and he ends the chapter by telling them, your sin remains. Why? Because you reject me as Messiah. You reject me as Lord. You reject me as the Son of God. This is the dividing line of Scripture. This is the dividing line of the Gospel. This is the dividing line that you should be praying that your sons and your daughters come to faith in Jesus Christ and they're on the side of light and on the side of belief and on the side of following. This is what we should pray for. This should be the earnestness of our prayer should be, God, let my children see the truth of the gospel. God, let my family see the truth of the gospel. You see, if these Pharisees who say they see would have come to the conclusion, I'm lost and in the dark and I need the Messiah and I believe that you're him, then they very well could have been saved. Every one of us. That's right. Amen. Amen. Not one of us can claim some superiority. But for God, there go I. Amen. So let's start at verse 1. I want to start right there. I want to start at verse 1 for a very simple reason, and we're going to go through this pretty quickly. He says, number one, Jesus was passing by and saw a man which was born blind from birth. Now, this seems to be uh, 
common knowledge, okay? Everybody in this story seems to understand that there was a man that sat outside this gate and, and he begged and his only source of income was, was to hand out from other people, okay, because he was born blind. Nobody argues the fact that there was a man born blind, amen? So when Jesus saw him, he saw a man that was born blind from his birth. This isn't some supernatural, oh, Jesus knows this from some supernatural place. Now we know he did, but that's not what's being said here. This is common knowledge, and it's common knowledge throughout this whole uh, narrative, okay? Verse 2. There's very important truths here in verse 2 that we need to put together. His disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now I want to start with the understanding that in the ancient Jewish day, the common uh, a common belief was that all suffering, all all uh, 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 sickness, all disease was caused by personal sin. Okay, so if you had leprosy, or if you had uh, uh, you know uh, uh, a withered hand, or if you were born blind, it, it had to be because you sinned. Now. I'm not discounting that sometimes, sometimes suffering can be the result of sin. The Bible definitely says sometimes suffering can be a result of sin. It does not teach that every time someone is suffering and every time someone is sick, it's because of sin. We know differently from the New Testament, okay? Now I want to give you a few verses. Uh, while suffering may be the result of sin as seen in, first of all, you can go to the New Testament. There is a verse that talks about some suffering being from sin. You can go to James chapter uh, 5, okay? Or no, John chapter 5. John chapter 5, sorry. Go to John chapter 5 real quick. We're going to read it. And then I'll throw a couple more verses out there that you can go look up on your own. Well, if I just can't find John 5 to save my life now. Verse 14, okay? Now, you remember this verse. This is Jesus finds this man that had been uh, born, that had been lame for 30-some years, laying beside this pool, right? The healing at the pool of Bethesda. Jesus, afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. Okay? So there is a connection at times between people's suffering and their own personal sin. That is true. Sometimes. But we can't automatically assume just because someone is sick that it just has to be sin in their life, okay? And and as a church, uh, and I'm not talking about our church, I'm talking about as a whole, the church has leaped to these conclusions time and time again. As a matter of fact, there's still groups of people today that if, if you're sick, they're going to look you right in the face and tell you it's because there's sin in your life. And that's not always true. Okay, that's not always the case. And we must be very careful leveling a judgment like that upon somebody's affliction. Rather, we should do what Jesus does every time he comes into contact with an afflicted person. We should pray that they're no longer afflicted. You never once see Jesus pray for someone to remain afflicted. Okay, you never see him do that. Now, we can admonish them, hey, you need to make sure you're living your life for God. You need to make sure you're doing these things. But we can't always jump to the conclusion that just because they're sick, there's sin in their life. Matter of fact, uh, and, and a couple other places, Numbers 12 uh, are, are parts where you can see where people's personal sin resulted in affliction. Remember, Miriam. Uh, in in uh, Numbers 12 was struck with leprosy because of her sin, right? Uh, and here in uh, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty, 30, 
Uh, you can also go to James chapter 5, verse 15, okay? Those are some places where sometimes sin is a result, uh, or suffering is a result of sin, okay? Now, it's not always the case in the New Testament. The number one thing I want to make clear here is Jesus makes it clear that that's not what's happening here, okay? Jesus makes it clear that this man didn't sin, nor his parents sinned to cause what's happening right now, okay? So we got to make sure we get that out of this text, okay? Now, there's a couple other places that you can look about sin not being the cause of someone's suffering, okay? Sin not being the cause of suffering, okay? Let's talk about this. Number one, Jesus never sinned. Can we get an amen on that? Jesus never sinned, yet Jesus suffered and died for you and me, okay? So his suffering had nothing to do with his own personal sin. Can I get an amen on that? Now, we also could go to Luke chapter 13, verse 2 through 3. Uh, we could go to 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Uh, Galatians 4.13. Uh, I think I want to go to uh, 1 Corinthians 12. I believe this is a pretty good verse for this. Uh, there's also lots of other people who suffered in the Bible, and it was not because of sin, okay? And we're going to talk about those in just a second, and then we're going to move on very quickly. So 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I believe it's verse 7. Uh -uh. 12 verse 7 and lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelation there was given to me a thorn in the flesh the messenger of Satan to buffet me lest I should be exalted above measure now here Paul is telling you about a thorn in his flesh that he prayed that God would take away three times. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient. And here Paul tells you that this messenger of Satan was sent to keep Paul from being puffed up, to keep him from being exalted, to keep him from being haughty and high-minded about himself because of the great revelations that he had about Jesus Christ and he delivered them to the church. But to keep him humble, God gave him this thorn in the flesh. So it wasn't a result of Paul's sin. It wasn't a result of, uh, of anybody else's sin. It was a result from God giving him that thorn to keep him from being puffed up. Oh, would we rejoice in the thing that God gives us from being too haughty. Because all of us could become very haughty if God would not keep us humble. Amen. Now, let's go back, if you will. Uh, well, hold on. I'm gonna, yeah, let's go back to John 9. And we're going to walk through this a little more. Uh, verse 3. I want you to note this in verse 3. He says, Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned, so he's answering the question, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Okay? So let me speak this in layman's English for you. God had other plans. Okay? Now, you guys and, and modern Christianity won't, won't suffer to hear this sometimes, but the reality is God allowed this person to suffer with blindness from the time they were born for God's own purpose. Well, God doesn't do that, preacher. Are you sure about that? Let's go read Job. And we're not going to turn there, okay? But if you read Job 1 and Job 2, Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2, specifically Job chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, okay, where Job in chapter 1, it tells you that Job was righteous and uh, turned his face away from evil and was blessed of God with so many children and so much of this and so much of that. 
So he's not a sinner. He's not a person walking in abject sin. And then in chapter 2, Satan and all the other angels come before God to, 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 uh, to bring their petitions or, or, or answer to God. And, and Satan, God asks Satan, where have you come from? And he says, I've been out roaming to and fro throughout the whole earth. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? Job didn't sin, but God had a plan. And it, con and it concerned Job. And Job's testing cost him all of his children, all of his wealth, all of his land. It cost Job his health. He was setting with sores and blisters and burns all on his flesh for years. And it was God's plan. God initiated the plan. Let's talk about Joseph, who was sold into slavery. Let's talk about Joseph, who, when he got to the house of Potiphar, was then lied about, accused of sleeping with Pharaoh's wife, and thrown in prison. Let's talk about this same Joseph that when his brothers came before him in chapter 50, he tells them what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God had a plan to bring me before you so that I might save a whole nation. You understand that God had a plan even in the midst of people's suffering. God sent, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow your mind, God sent Nebuchadnezzar. Matter of fact, the Bible says that God chose Nebuchadnezzar and made him an instrument of his hand to come in and wipe Israel out and take them into captivity. But he said, don't fear. 70 years and you're going to go back. Their suffering was part of God's plan. And it's hard for us to wrap our mind around this, but let's just talk about the people in the Bible in the New Testament. Let's talk about Peter, who was beheaded, or excuse me, crucified upside down. Let's talk about Andrew, who was crucified. Let's talk about Stephen, who was stoned to death. Let's talk about Paul, who was beheaded. Let's talk about all these other people who died. John was boiled in oil. John was not just boiled in oil. John had his eyes gouged out. And his suffering was God's plan because it performed glory to God by these men who would not give up. He said they loved their lives not even to the death. Because they loved Christ more. It gives you a whole new picture when you understand that John was blind when he was on the island of Patmos. And then he records these words. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I saw. How did he see? He was blind. You understand that God has a purpose for suffering. And generally speaking, that suffering is to cause those who are suffering to glorify him in the midst of their suffering so that those who don't believe will believe. Don't lose heart in the midst of your suffering because God has a purpose in your suffering. Even in this church's suffering. How many of you feel like the church is suffering, okay? 
Come on, somebody. You know, ties was down. People, attendance is down. Uh, you know, people are telling other people, hey, don't go over there. People are talking about us. But guess what? God's got a plan in the middle of the suffering. And if you don't recognize that God's going to use this to bring glory to himself, you'll just despair and your hope will not be set on Christ. We must realize that this man who was blind is going to see, first of all, physically, and then he's going to see spiritually. Amen? Now we're going to quickly move through this. I've got a few notes I want to read. Verse 4 says in verse 4, I must work the works of him that sent me. Now, there is in the ESV and the NASB and the NIV, they all use a modern uh, uh, Greek text that says we. Okay? Here in verse 4, most new Bibles are going to say we must work the works of him who sent me. And I'm sure in verse 4 of Mike's ESV, it says that. Now, I would argue this. The whole chapter is talking about Jesus and his work. And he uses the words I, 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 I throughout the whole chapter. And when you throw we in there, it doesn't actually make that much sense. Okay? Especially when you read the next verse, he says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Amen? This chapter is about Christ and it's about his work. So I believe that the Textus Receptus or the Byzantine reading of eme or E-M-E, the Greek word eme, instead of ego, we, is the correct Greek verb, okay? Or noun, whatever you want to call it. I think I fits the reading, okay? I think it makes more sense. Now, some of them, when they read this we, say, oh, it says we, and it's including the disciples in this work. But it can't be including the disciples in the work of redemption, okay? Christ is the only redeemer, does not need their help to complete the work of redemption. Their work will come later in the proclamation of this redemption, amen? So we got to understand when we're reading this, we want to read it correctly. And I think I makes the most sense here. Uh, number one, the reference to I, he says in verse four, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night is coming. This is really simple to break down. Number one, Jesus is saying while he's here on this earth performing the father's will, the will of redemption, right? This is when he's most effectively the light of the world. He said, night is coming when no man will work. What's he talking about? Generally speaking, you will not find one single uh, commentator, theologian that's going to argue this fact. He is talking about his time of being separated from the disciples and going to the cross and paying the price for our redemption. He's talking about being separated from them in that way. It is not meant to say that he's no longer the light of the world because even now... When we read Revelation, he's going to be the light of all of heaven. He's going to be a light in the new city. There's not going to be a sun or a moon because there'll be no need for them because the lamb will be the light of that place. Amen. So the lamb didn't stop being the light of the world. What he was trying to tell them is that there's a time coming when I'm going to suffer and die for you. Okay. Now, he says in verse 5, as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. Amen. And this is alluding to his earthly ministry. But I would also like to hearken back to John chapter 1, uh, verse, uh, let's see, 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. You can also go to Luke 8, 12, where he talks, or John 8, 12, excuse me, where he talks about being the light of the world. John 8 and 12. Did I say John 12? John 8, verse 12. 
Then spoke Jesus unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Amen. So we understand that John is telling them emphatically with this story. Jesus is telling them that I am the light of the world. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. Meaning his earthly ministry to come and seek and to save that which is lost. Uh, when he thus spoke, he spit on the ground. Why did he make clay? A lot of people, there's a lot of speculation. Oh, he did this and he did that. I want to give you a very simple yet profound understanding. That in John 1 it says that all things were made by him. By who? The word of God that was in the beginning with God that was God himself. Jesus Christ made Adam. Jesus Christ was the one that formed Adam from the dust of the earth. So it should not surprise us that this Jesus who was from the beginning of time the Son of God with God and was God who made all things and that there was nothing made without him. This same Jesus who formed Adam from the dust of the earth lowered himself, spit on the ground, and stuck some mud on that man's eye. Now, quickly, number one, the mud did not heal the man. The water did not heal the man. So what healed the man? Jesus healed the man. That is true. That's absolutely true. The word of God healed the man. But the word of God and this man's faith in the word of God was proved when he went and washed. When he went and washed, it proved that he had faith in what Christ said. And when he had faith in what Christ said, we know that he was going to get what he was promised. Amen? Christ healed the man. Absolutely emphatically. That's what the whole argument for the rest of the chapter is. What do you mean this man healed you? What did he do to heal you? What do you mean he done that? This man's a sinner. Now why do they think he's a sinner? Okay. Was there an actual law that said you couldn't make spit mud on the Sabbath day? Was there an actual law that said that? Not one law ever said that you couldn't do that. Matter of fact, nowhere in the, in, in the Bible or even in the Mosaic law was it illegal to knead bread on the Sabbath, okay? Do you know why they said he was a sinner and he was breaking the Sabbath? Because in Jewish tradition, in the mitzvah, the, the little book of the, 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 the uh, Jewish uh, rabbinic tradition, Chapter 7, verse 2 of that book said that it was unlawful to knead bread on the Sabbath day. And since he kneaded this spit and this dirt into a clay, then he was kneading and he was breaking the Sabbath. But that's not in God's law. That's in their tradition. Amen? So we got to understand the difference between tradition and God's actual law. Amen? And they were mixing the two, okay? When you start to mix your tradition as if it is God's word, you're in error. And these men were in error. Because, first of all, this is Jesus Christ is the God who gave you the Sabbath. Okay? We've already proved that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Amen? We've also already talked about how the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath was given to us as a blessed thing to give us rest, not as a law to beat us over the head with. Okay? Now, I want to get through this pretty quick. Number one, the pool did not heal the man. Faith in the command of Christ was the thing that caused Christ's 
word to heal the man. Amen. The man was healed by the command of Almighty God. But the man's faith in the command was put to the test when he washed. Amen. Christ truly healed this man. His faith, is the com his faith in the command was the test that proved by his obedience when he went to wash. He comes to the conclusion in verse 17. Well, this man's a prophet. And this is after the Pharisees are questioning him. And the, the or the, excuse me, the, the people who knew him beforehand. They were questioning him saying, well, who do you say he is? Verse 17, he says, he's a prophet. Now, this is the progression. First, he didn't even know who Jesus was, right? All he knew is some man named Jesus told him, hey, go wash in the pool. That's what he says. Uh, around verse what 16 or something like that he says I don't know where he is I don't know where he went he just told me to go do this and I'm healed well who do you say that he is now we have a progression from not knowing who Christ is to now believing that God sent him and he's a prophet amen but he's greater than a prophet he's more than that amen and that's where Jesus is heading with this guy amen uh, verse 24, they tried to place him under an oath. They said, give God praise. In other words, they're saying, you need to give God praise for healing you, not this sinner Jesus. Now, first of all, the Bible says, woe unto them who call evil good and good evil. Right? These Pharisees are calling the only son of God, the, the lamb of God, the son of man, the son of David, the son of God, the Messiah, they're calling him a sinner. That's pretty dangerous ground. So in other words, they're doing just what Job's friends was doing, accusing God. They didn't know him. And it was evident that they didn't know him. Not only did they not know him, they don't want to know him at all. They don't believe this man, and they don't believe Christ. They are doing everything they can to disprove Christ and to accuse him of sin. Now, here's the thing that I want you to get in this whole thing. It says when they brought the parents that the Jews didn't believe the parents. And I want to get this thinking out of your mind because we tend to westernize the gospel, we tend to make people, uh, take them out of their culture and make them something they're not. The parents were Jews. The man that was healed was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. Can, can, can we get this in our minds, okay? So when he says the Jews didn't believe him, he's not talking about the people. He's talking about the religious leaders, okay? All through the book of John, when he says the Jews, he's talking about the, the Sanhedrin, those who are in leadership in the Jewish culture, okay? So when he says the Jews, he's talking about the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Jerusalem Council, those who are uh, uh, priests at the synagogues, those are the Jews. When he says the Jews, that's who he's talking about. Don't get it mistaken. This woman, the parents, and the, the son who was healed, who was born blind, they were all Jews. They were all Jewish. Okay? So when he says Jews, he's talking about the leadership of the people. Amen? That's what he's talking about. I want to clear that up because sometimes people go, well, see, uh, this guy, you know, he was just he just regular guy. He was just kind of, you know, like me and you. No, he was a Jew. And his parents were Jews. Okay? Now, I want to go to the next step here. When the, the Pharisees come, notice in verse, uh, they bring him to the Pharisees in verse, uh, what, what chapter? Verse 13, they bring him to the Pharisees, right? They have this dialogue all the way to verse 24, okay? Verse 24, 
Then they called the man that was blind and said unto him, Give praise to God, right? They said, We know that this man is a sinner. He said, I don't know whether he's a sinner or no. I know not uh, one thing I know. I was blind, and now I see. Then they said unto him, What did he do, and how did he open your eyes? Verse 27, he answered them and said, I told you already, and you did not hear. Wherefore, will you hear it again? Will you be his disciples also? Now, this is the question of this man, okay? I want you to notice this man's thought process, okay? Watch this. Verse 28, they reviled him and said, Thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. Now, I'm going to stop right here. If they were truly Moses' disciples, then they would believe in the one whom Moses spoke of. If they were truly Moses' disciples, they would believe what Moses says about the man. Yeah, well, I have, I have it written down, okay? Jesus said, <laughs> if they believed Moses, they would have believed me. John 5, 46, Moses spoke of me. Amen? So they're not believing Moses. And this proves one thing, that they are truly just religious and they don't even believe their own book. They don't believe the prophets. They don't believe Moses. They're only in it so that they can be uh, lifted up above the people. They're only in it so that they can have stature and status so that they can walk around. And Jesus tells them this. He said, you, you, you put long gowns on and you make sure that you have a train of, of flowing from your robes. You tie cords to them. You have the best clothes and you walk around with the trumpet blaring before you. Here comes the prophet. Here comes the priest. But when he's teaching his disciples, he says, you don't be like that. When you pray, you pray in secret. When you give, you give in secret. Amen? Why? Because we're not here to promote self-righteousness. I'm not up here because I'm self-righteous and I'm better than you. I'm up here because the living God saved me, a worthless sinner, and gave me eternal life through his son. They don't believe Moses or the prophets. Jesus makes this clear. True religion outside of faith in Christ is impossible. The only true religion is believing in the one and only Son of God. So if you have a religious mentality and you, you try to live a self-righteous life apart from Christ, you're going to split hell wide open. You may very well be doing good things, but good things don't get you to heaven. Knowing who Christ is gets you to heaven. They didn't even know it. No. Yeah. Yep. That's right. That's right. And that's the whole point of this chapter is to separate those who truly believe and those who are just wanting to exalt their own self. Selfish, arrogant, pompous, religious people. I want to note in verse 31, he says, we know that God doesn't even hear sinners. And there's some verses for that you can write down and go look at. Psalm 34, verse 15. Psalm 66, verse 18. Psalm 109, verse 7. And Psalm 145, 19. We know that God stops his ears at the unrighteous. We know that the Bible says he doesn't hear their prayer. Right? So how could this man be a sinner, yet God hear his prayer and heal this man? And that's the whole premise that this guy gives. He gives two reasons that he was healed. And he gives two defenses of who Christ is. He said, we know that God doesn't hear sinners. Right? He says, we know 
that no one could do anything unless God was with him. We could, he couldn't have done this miracle except God were with him. Now watch this. What did Jesus tell Nicodemus? What does this man say? We know that Nicodemus said, we know that thou art a man sent from God because no one could do the things that you're doing unless God was with him. Amen? So the fact that the Pharisees are missing this is a huge statement. Listen to me when I say this. Religious people who don't know Jesus will never see the facts that are presented to them. It won't matter to them. The facts don't matter. The fact that this man was blind is now healed. The fact that Jesus is the one that put the mud on his eyes. It all doesn't matter if it matters because their agenda is against him. No, so no matter what Jesus does, they're still against him. And I'm sorry, outside of a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, that's where everybody in this world's at. They're not seeking God. They're not trying to get to God. They are doing every, everything they can to prove God wrong. That's what the world's doing right now. And if you think this world that we're living in is actually seeking after God, i got another thing for you. They're not. They hate God. They don't want God. The things of God are totally against the things they love, the world, the flesh, and the devil. They're blinded. That's why they can't see all that. They're blinded. They're, they're, they're dead. That's right. That's right. That's right. Well, the point, of this, the point of this is this. These men are seeing the same light that that blind man saw. But they don't believe. Do you understand? That's going to happen. You cannot beat yourself up when you preach the gospel and people don't hear. It, they weren't listening to Christ when he was standing right in front of them. Your job is just to preach the gospel, love them, do what you can to show them Christ, and let God do the rest. Jesus, Jesus didn't bind one spirit off of these men. I, I, I'm, I'm, begging, I'm begging to differ. We live for Jesus, right? We do what Jesus shows us to do. Jesus didn't do this to these people. Now, he did, on occasion, cast spirits out. I'm not saying that that's not what can happen. What I'm saying is, just like his disciples came to him, the man, Jairus, with his daughter, said, I tried to, your disciples tried to do this, and they couldn't do it. There's a point in our spiritual life where nothing we're going to do is going to make any difference unless God does something. Period. Okay? God had to do... God was standing right in front of these people. Why wouldn't God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, say, well, I just bind the spirits that are on you that are keeping you from hearing this, and I, I'm telling you you need to hear it. But he didn't do that. No. No. That's not what he did. And as far as we know, the people, the leaders of the Jews, killed him. They didn't get saved. Some people did. Nicodemus is one person who was part of that group that was saved. But Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't even pray that way when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane by himself. He said, Father... I pray that you, he said, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them while they're in the world, right? He said, I'm not praying for the whole world. This is Jesus' own words. I'm not praying for the whole world, but those you gave me. He said, I'm praying for them, and I'm praying for those who will believe on their testimony. That's what Jesus said. 
The understanding is this. Nowhere in this are we talking about binding or loosening spirits in this chapter, okay? We're teaching what's here in front of us, right? My point is, nowhere in the New Testament are we told to pray that way for someone to receive Christ. We, we're told to, we're, we are told to pray for people. That is absolutely certain. We want people to believe, and we're, we, we can pray, God, uh, we ask you to to. Uh, stop the work of the enemy and where we're at. We ask you to, to help the gospel go forth where we're at. We pray that the people that we talk to can hear the gospel. We pray that. But in all reality, you don't have any control over whether that person is going to believe or not. You, you can't control that. If you could, everybody around you would be saved, right? So, that's what we're talking about. People believing the gospel, okay? And we can't make that happen. God is the author of salvation, and God has to be at work in that call, right? We see two groups of people in this text. A man and several other people who do believe, and they are made where they can see. See what? See that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And then we see a whole nother group of people who are religious and can't see and won't believe and will not and do not. Matter of fact, it's so bad that they seek to kill him every time he comes to Jerusalem. And we never have Jesus praying not for that to happen. Why? Because he knew there was a goal, and the, the goal is him going to the cross, him suffering in our place. Amen? So why did he say that to those people? It's very evident because he knew that he must go to the cross. Judas, let's talk about Judas, and I'm going to close with this. Judas was a disciple, right? Jesus chose him. Yet John says that Jesus knew that Judas was the devil from the beginning. Jesus knew it and still called him to be one of the 12 disciples. You understand that? Let that sink in for a minute. Jesus called Judas to be one of the 12 disciples. And God had a plan for Judas. His plan was that Judas betray Christ. That's not easy for us to wrap our minds around because the reality is that although there are going to be a great multitude that cannot be numbered that are saved, there's also a great multitude that won't believe. I'm not saying that we're not to go out and try to win every single person that we talk to. Amen? We are to preach the gospel to every creature. Isn't that, what, isn't that what Mark says? We're to preach the gospel to everyone. Right? But I don't get to choose who's going to believe and who's not going to believe. I don't get to choose which ones will hear and which ones won't hear. God will work in and through me to save whoever he will. That's what the Bible says. He will save whoever he will. But I can't pretend as if I'm going to do it. Now, will I pray earnestly that every person I talk to gets saved? Certainly I will. Will I pray that God would open their deaf ears? Certainly I will. Will I pray that God would open the eyes of their understanding? 
Would I pray that God would stop the work of the enemy in their life? Certainly I will. I'm never going to stand up here and tell you to pray any other way. We should be praying for them. We should be witnessing to them. We should be telling them the truth and praying that God would stop the work of the enemy and open their blind eyes. Certainly we need to pray that. Definitely. But in the end, what we see in this story was not everybody coming to faith in Christ. What we see is Jesus said, I've come for judgment that those who were blind would be seen and those who say they see would be made blind. And that word made blind is a very important statement that we can wrestle with at another time. But Jesus certainly knew who would believe and who wouldn't believe. And he was telling the Pharisees, because you don't believe, your sin remains. Amen? There's only one way to heaven. Only one way. Beloved, I want to say this again. There's only one way to heaven. <clears throat> I'm going to say this as clear as I can. Your family won't get saved because you believe in Jesus. Your family will not come to Christ because you believe in Christ. They will only come to Christ because they believe in Christ. Period. End of story. You can't save them. God saves every person who believes. So yes, like Tanya said, we do need to be praying for them. We do need to be praying that, that they can hear. We do need to pray, be praying that God would open their eyes. We do need to be praying that they would believe. But I can't let you get discouraged on your own self and act as if it's all your fault that they don't believe because Jesus was standing right in front of these Pharisees and they still didn't believe. They saw the miracle. They knew the man and they still didn't believe. Are we to put that charge on Jesus and say, oh, they didn't believe because he didn't do enough? Uh, am I supposed to put the charge for your family not believing on your feet and saying, oh, you just, you're just not doing enough? No, I can't do that. Certainly, we need to be praying. Certainly, we need to be witnessing. Certainly, we need to be praying that God would open their eyes and that, that, the, that the work of the enemy would be stopped so that these people can hear. Certainly, we need to be praying but what I'm trying to tell you is Jesus saves and nothing else. You do the witnessing. You do the praying. And God works everything else out. Amen? And that's what we see working here. Is that this man was healed and Jesus told him, this is the reason I came. So those who are blind could see. And those who think they don't need me would be made blind the question isn't oh what am I going to do the question isn't oh what are they going to do the question is do I believe in Jesus that's the question of this text that's the question that he asked that man do you believe in the son of God that's the point that's our aim in prayer that's our aim in spiritual warfare is that people will answer the question, yes, when we ask, do you believe in the Son of God? Amen? Now, I like the fact that Tanya is telling us we need to pray for them people. I think that is a lost art in Christian living is praying that God would rebuke the devourer, that he would rebuke the enemy, that he would stop up the enemy's work, that he would move on the hearts of men, that he would change people's minds, give them light to see, give them eyes to see. Amen? I love that that's Tanya's heart. I love that that's what she loves to do, and that should be the part of every Christian's life. 
that type of prayer, that type of seeking God. And certainly, that's what Christ wants us to do. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and praise you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. Lord, we thank you that your spirit moves in us. Lord, that he quickens us to pray for others. That he empowers us to stand with others in prayer. Lord, that when we don't know what to pray, that he prays for us with groanings and utterings that cannot be mentioned. Lord, we pray at this church that you would mold us and shape us into the image of Christ. That this church would be a praying church. That this church would be a, a church that sought your face for those who are lost and dying around us. Lord, this church would be a church that loved those who are lost and dying around us. Lord, forgive us where we fall short. Forgive us, Lord, when we have become too high-minded of our own selves and we have forgotten from whence we have come. Remind us, God, that if it wasn't for your grace, we would be in the same position as all these others. So, God, we truly pray for our city today. Lord, we ask that you would stop up the mouths of those who are being used by the enemy. We pray, God, that you would sh shut off the enemies working in the lives of those who are lost and dying around us. We pray that you would give them ears to hear and eyes to see the truth of the gospel. Lord, that they would not listen to the voice of the enemy, that they would not listen to the voice of the world, that they would surely not listen to the voice of their flesh, but that they would hear the Spirit call, that they would hear the call of the Father, the Good Shepherd, as He calls His sheep home, that they would believe the gospel and come and fellowship with us here at this place, that we might become one body united for one service and that is reaching the lost with the gospel of Christ. Seeking and saving those who are lost. And bringing them to the only one who could save. Christ, the Lord, the Son of God. Whom we answer, yes, we believe in him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.